Welcome to a podcast brought to you by the American Academy of Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapists. Our academy is a national organization committed to excellence in orthopedic manual physical therapy practice, education, and research. And we're here to explore a wide range of topics with you through interviews with content experts. Hello, my name is Stephen Schaefer, and I'm excited to bring to you another great topic, which I hope you can use in your clinical practice moving forward. Today's guest is Chad Cook. Chad is a clinical researcher, physical therapist, and profession advocate with a history of clinical care excellence and service. His passions include refining and improving the patient examination process and validating tools used in day-to-day physical therapist practice. He is, for anyone familiar with the Academy, a longtime contributor to AMT and we're honored to have him join our podcast for the first time. We invited Chad to the podcast today to talk about his recent 2022 AMPT conference keynote address, which was titled The Junk Drawer. During this address, he spoke about the dangers of meta-analyzing heterogeneous information that does not reflect clinical practice. This promises to be an eye-opening topic. Bearing that in mind, let's avoid any further delay and get to the interview. Chad, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? Well, uh, today's a Friday, so I'm better than usual, but overall I'm doing great and I'm very happy to be here. That is excellent, and we of course are excited to have you here on the AMPT podcast. And let's just dive right into the topic at hand. And a relatively simple question that I would like to ask is, why did you decide to title your keynote address, The Junk Drawer? A couple of reasons. We're having our kitchen redone. And I'll just say this, we've been having our kitchen redone for the last six months. It's taken forever. But the last thing to go in the old kitchen was our junk drawer. And I I was somewhat worried about it, that I wouldn't have a place to put my stuff. And my wife kind of got onto me. She said, why are you so fixated on a junk drawer? It's just a bunch of meaningless junk that isn't connected in any way. And I said, yeah, like a systematic review. And then I realized that John Ioannidis had said that previously, and I thought, well, that's the perfect title for the keynote address, since I was specifically talking about limitations and systematic reviews. I I just thought the junk drawer was the appropriate title. I love the history behind the title, and of course, and perhaps I should say, unfortunately, it sounds like a very appropriate title for this topic. And speaking of which, For the next and maybe more serious question, let's talk about the inherent assumptions of sham studies. Can you address the challenges of creating a so-called placebo manual therapy comparator or even a sham comparator? I'd be happy to. There are many. And there have been many studies actually that have eloquently outlined and have actually gone far enough to say you can't create a placebo manual therapy study, and you can barely create a sham manual therapy study. But I think I need to define some things first, because in my experience, a lot of people have misunderstandings about these. So let's talk about placebo first. In in order for a treatment to be a true placebo, it has to be completely inert, have no therapeutic effect, There needs to be blinding on both sides so the patient can't tell what they're getting, and then also the provider can't tell what they're providing. 
And that automatically eliminates manual therapy because by its nature, you're touching the patient and there's therapeutic benefit to touch. And the provider always knows what they're providing. So that contextual piece can't be factored in on a true placebo. You'll hear people say placebo effect. That's actually very different than the concept of placebo. Placebo effect is when the patient assumes something's going to be beneficially tied to that treatment. There are a lot of different things that can initiate a placebo effect. Therapeutic alliance can do that. Patient expectations, the way that you approach the treatment and present it to the patient. If there's a big ceremony involved with the treatment, like with dry needling, that, that often has a placebo effect. And a placebo effect's not a negative thing. Some people call it a contextual effect or, or something like that. But a placebo effect is different than a placebo. A placebo is an intervention. The placebo effect is when the patient actually thinks there's something more beneficial associated with that care. And there's one more thing, and that's a sham. And a sham is an inactive procedure that's supposed to mimic the intervention as closely as possible and is applied without the magic ingredient that's supposed to make a difference. A good comparison would be if you were doing sham and you're using needles that look like acupuncture needles, except that you don't actually insert them into the skin. You just poke the skin, but you don't actually insert them into the skin. That would be a great sham intervention. And uh, I know I'm getting long-winded here, but there are reasons behind why you can't even do appropriate shams in manual therapy. Thank you for that. You can call it long-winded, but for me, that felt like a very clear and succinct answer. And of course, you've just outlined part of why manual therapy research will perhaps never be as scientifically rigorous as something like pharmaceutical studies. We just don't have the ability to be as strict to the scientific method with the blinding, etc. And that's always been one of those topics that I find very frustrating, not just as a clinician, but also as someone who likes to participate in the research process. I completely agree. And if you think about manual therapy, so much of what is likely associated with the clinical effect is that contextual encounter with the patient. So it's not just the technique you use or the thrust or what your hand placement is or your assumptions on where what's happening at the joint or tissue level. It's that interaction with the patient and that placebo effect that is affiliated to whatever mechanism is attached to that. The problem that I outlined in the keynote with the sham interventions is they actually did not use a sham intervention that looked like the technique that they were testing. So instead of, for example, if we did mobilization, instead of putting the hand placement in the same position, having the same contextual encounter, same positioning of the therapist, same positioning on the table by the patient, they often used a completely different intervention and called it a sham. And I actually talked a little bit about this. I mean, they did things like traction of the spine. Foot massage was used one time as a, quote, sham intervention. One person pushed on the umbilical region. And then lastly, there was light touch all over the body. So they didn't even meet the base requirements of a sham in almost every situation in those studies that actually compared a manual therapy approach versus a sham. 
That's all super interesting. And it reminds me of a quote that I heard from someone once. And basically what they said was, the scientific method itself is really solid, but how we implement it as human beings performing science sometimes is the biggest flaw. That point aside, for our next question, an assumption of the systematic review is that findings can and should influence clinical practice. When it comes to what might seem like a non-clinical topic, that is to say the methodology behind these systematic reviews, can you talk to us for a little bit about what clinical transferability is and why it's so important? Yeah, I'm happy to. And because it's it may be the most important thing that you glean from a systematic review. And at its simplest form, that clinical transferability is, are these findings relevant to my patient population? And I often give this a little analogy. Let's say you drive a gasoline vehicle and you look at a magazine and it talks about problems associated with electric vehicles. Well, they're both cars. So, you know, you may be interested in that end of it, but an electric vehicle is completely different than a gas vehicle. And if you drive a gas vehicle, you're interested in problems associated with gas vehicles, not electric vehicles. If you take that information, that was reported in problems associated with electrical vehicles and try to transfer it over to your driving in your car, it's not going to make any sense. It's not transferable. And we often see that in these systematic reviews because of inclusion criteria challenges, because many of them are efficacy studies where they're performed in a lab and they don't really replicate real world environments. Or for other reasons, it just doesn't reflect your patient population. And as a career researcher, and one that will tell you that you have to build very tight inclusion criteria in your studies often to get them approved through the IRB, but often that self-selected patient population that's in these studies, they don't look anything like the patients that you treat Monday through Friday. Excellent. Thank you for that response. And I think not only will that be helpful for our audience, but I'd like to dive in just a little bit deeper. So taking things to the next step, when we're reading systematic reviews and meta-analyses, what more should clinicians be on the lookout for when they're trying to determine if the results of that particular publication are applicable to clinical practice? Well, I think people get hung up on things like risk of bias and grade scores, which by the way are incredibly important. And if we have time, I'd love to talk about that. But when we're thinking about clinical transferability, one of the first things I do is really go in and look at inclusion exclusion criteria of the studies that were selected. Look at the age, population, and demographics of those particular individuals, but also look at the severity of those individuals. How severe was their disease process or condition, and is it reflective of what you typically see in clinical practice? But I always go a step further, and I consider the treatments that those individuals actually received because I want to see if those treatments are reflective of what I know as best clinical practice and what I do in clinical practice. And often what you see is a pretty marked difference between what was provided for the patient population and what we know as best practice. And if you don't mind, I'd like to give you some examples, especially from the systematic reviews on on manual therapy, on some of the things that we've seen with respect to the, the fidelity of the treatment that it was actually provided. What did the manual therapy look like? 
Yeah, that sounds like a great topic. Let's dive right into it. Well, one of the biggest things we found was that about 46% of the papers in one particular review in BMJ Open included only one intervention provided one time. So it was one visit, and they may have done one thrust or one mobilization. And I think most of the clinicians out there would say that that does not reflect clinical practice whatsoever. The other challenge was is what they were describing as manual therapy was often very fringe and really lacked scientific mechanisms to back it as a therapeutic intervention. In fact, we found over about 50% of the studies that were included involved those techniques. In some of the cases, they didn't even touch the patient. Some of the cases, they used interventions that were built on false constructs like craniosacral therapy. So lumped into a uh, comparative systematic review and meta-analysis, you had things like spinal manipulation and mobilization, which we know have a clinical effect. And then you had a, a bunch of really weird, potentially non-therapeutic agents dropped in there too. And unless a person did a deep dive and really looked at these in that systematic review, they, they wouldn't be able to see if it's reflective of what they do in clinical practice. That's a big piece of clinical transferability that I definitely want to impart on your listeners. Thank you for that. And I couldn't agree more. From my point of view, one of the key things you mentioned essentially is dosage. I've always been frustrated when I read publications to see the dosage that they're implementing, and then they draw some sort of conclusion about, is this treatment effective or not? And the dosage that they implemented during the study is oftentimes a small fraction of the dosage that I find is required for maybe not all of my patients, but definitely many of my patients. And one of the things that I love talking about and thinking about and even educating patients on is the differences in body types from person to person. Right now in my caseload, for example, I might have very flexible people, maybe, for example, people that are on the hypermobility spectrum, but then also very stiff people. And they can come in with the same exact diagnosis and they require extremely different dosages when receiving that personalized treatment. And never in a research study on manual therapy have I seen something like that topic addressed. Yeah, frequently what you see in these clinical trials is they try to be prescriptive on how they apply the technique. In other words, very similar to what you might see in a drug study so that it can be replicated. And I'm with you. In reality, the person needs what the person needs, and, and sometimes that will vary greatly. I will say this, it's typically not just one technique performed one visit. I don't think that's therapeutic. I was actually very uh, chuffed to find out that about a month after the keynote that I provided, there was a systematic review that looked at one visit of exercise and whether that is therapeutically beneficial, and they found that it wasn't. No shocker there. So it's the same. One visit of anything I really don't think has much of a therapeutic effect. It seems kind of laughable that that would even be looked at because even if you look at something as perhaps mundane and boring as an FDA recommendation on exercise, it's about doing it consistently and regularly. And we all know from studying and just living life that you can't do something like, let's say, go for a jog or ride a bike once and then magically save yourself from something like heart disease. Moving forward to the next topic, in your address at the conference, there were some 
specific points you outlined that pertain to weaknesses. Do you mind discussing with our audience a couple of those topics? And to start off this portion of our conversation, can you dive first into treatment fidelity? Yes, I'm happy to. And treatment fidelity takes two forms. There's either the fidelity related to did they do what they said they were going to do in the research study? So it's more related to was the research done the right way? And often what you'll find in studies is that in the protocol paper or when you register the paper on clinicaltrials.gov, you say what you're going to do, and then you'll look at the study and they actually do something different. That's a lack of fidelity. And then there's true treatment fidelity, which is did the treatment reflect clinical practice and did it allow the treatment to impart therapeutic benefit on the patient? In other words, was the dosage, was the visit count, was it performed contextually in the way that you would normally do it? Did it have the same interactions that you would normally see in a clinical practice? Did it really reflect clinical practice? That's treatment fidelity. And that is so important. And we've seen importance of treatment fidelity, especially in the psychological literature, where maybe the provider gets lazy or they change the approach as time goes on, or they tweak the approach to reflect their beliefs. Those are all alterations in treatment fidelity. But for the sake of this discussion, I think the real value of treatment fidelity is, is it really beneficial? So similar to what we were talking about with dose and therapeutic effect, is it something that can truly make a difference in that person's pain or disability? If it's provided in a way that it can't and it doesn't, then it's not a knock on the intervention. It's a knock on how the intervention was applied. Excellent. Thank you for covering that. Personally, for me, treatment fidelity is super important when talking about things like research integrity and applying results to clinical practice. I, of course, hope that our audience and all physiotherapists and other clinicians out there are bearing these factors in mind when reading the scientific body of evidence. And speaking to that point further, but perhaps zooming out to a larger view, in this case of OMPT research, Can you talk to us a bit about looking at the overall quality of research? For example, in today's conversation, you've already talked about the GRADE tool. How does that tool and perhaps how do other tools apply to looking at the quality of research? And when we actually look at that research, is our research in manual therapy of low, medium, or high quality? Yeah, so during my keynote, I actually addressed it two ways. I talked about the grade, which I will go into uh, secondly. I want to discuss also the fact that the particular systematic review I looked at used the AHRQ risk of bias tool, and I actually found that 92% of the included papers had poor quality. So, and if that sounds like it's a lot, it's because it is. In fact, they only indicated two of all of the included studies in that particular review, only two were considered good quality. So that fits the definition of junk and junk drawer, I think, perfectly. So grade is a little bit different because it basically gives you a certainty or confidence in making recommendations based on the data that you have. So it it does pull in the quality of the studies And then it allows you to basically frame that in a certain confidence level. And the authors of this BMJ open paper correctly identified 
the evidence as very low and low. And very low basically reduces the confidence in the estimate. It means that it's limited. And it probably is substantially different if the study was performed and was of higher quality. That's the summary of what the great evidence is for sham manual therapy studies. Now, for me, that basically means there's absolutely no connection to what was found and what is likely real. And and that's basically what the grade suggests, that the true effect is likely substantially different than the estimate of effect that was reported in the studies. The takeaway from that is essentially nothing. And this is what stunned me so much is that there was this huge uproar on social media and you know a lot of the manual therapy haters they thought they found their golden calf that they could pray to that this study came out but because of a lack of probably even reading the paper they probably didn't go past the abstract and probably because they don't understand what grade means in reality you you can't hang your hat on this information at all to be blunt those points are frightening and of course if the research we're reading belongs in the junk drawer then it starts to call into question whether or not we can truly call ourselves an evidence-based profession. Yeah, I think a a better term might be evidence-informed. And whereas I do think that the majority of sham and manual therapy studies are of very low quality, I am somewhat optimistic that some of the other work that is performed is a little bit higher in quality. I do think that we are at a point where we understand what the effects are well enough that uh, we can make recommendations on you know, what we need moving forward and what we probably don't need anymore. I'm not sure we can do an appropriate sham study to reflect reality, so I'm not sure I would invest in that. I'm not sure I would continue to compare one intervention to another intervention without trying to understand the mechanisms behind those interventions and whether they're specific or shared. I would definitely invest in studies that look at whether or not the use of manual therapy has a blocking effect or an early intervention effect that may reduce the need of downstream invasive care. I think something like that has been shown in observational studies, but we really haven't looked at it in a true control trial. So we've got enough that it's helping us. The quality of the work is still sketchy. I would say it's similar to the quality of surgical research that also has a lot of sketchiness to it too. But really the area that is most limited, in my opinion, is the sham research. Well, Chad, I like your optimism. I hope it's indicative of things looking better as we move forward. And as we're moving towards the closing out period of this conversation, let me say it's been a distinct pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank you for all your contributions, both to the Academy and to the profession as a whole. I know I speak for our entire team and for our audience when I say we look forward to hearing from you again in the future. Well, Stephen, thank you for having me on. It's been an honor to speak on this podcast. I do love AOMPT, and uh, anything that I can do will only be a fraction of what AOMPT has done for me. 
This has been a production of the American Academy of Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapists. You can learn more about the Academy by visiting our website at aaompt.org. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for our acronym, AAOMPT. The views and opinions expressed on the AOMPT podcast are those of the interviewers and interviewees and do not represent the official position of AOMPT. The information presented should not be used as personal health care or clinical practice advice. If you need to find an expert orthopedic physical therapist near you, then check out the Find a Fellow feature under the Public Resources tab at www.aaompt.org, which you can find in the show notes.